You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. I like to take my mask off for uh, for preaching. It gets in the way of uh, my uh, my cadence. I don't know. <laughs> The text we have for this Easter comes out of 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul writes, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So writes the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. This is such an interesting passage. I never actually preached on this on Sunday morning or on Easter morning. And it's such an interesting passage for a few reasons, not the least of which is that it reveals there were early Christians who apparently didn't believe in the resurrection or had serious questions about it. Paul's, of course, addressing them here and making his argument that the resurrection was literal. At least that's the way it seems to me. That's what he's arguing. But nevertheless, these these unbelieving Christians were present even in the early church, at least in the church at Corinth. The other interesting thing about this passage is how it functions as the passage, the go-to passage for so many Christians uh, who love to turn, turn to it and say, look, Christianity is all about the resurrection, a literal physical resurrection. If you do not believe in a literal physical resurrection, you are not only not a Christian, but If there was no literal physical resurrection, then Christianity is is utterly meaningless. I'm not saying that. I'm I'm saying that that's what's often argued when people trot out this passage, right? Because Paul, let's be honest, I think that's kind of what he's getting at here. Maybe I'm misreading him, but that's my reading of it. That's my understanding of Paul. And as you know, I have a lot of respect for Paul, but I don't think Paul was right about everything. (laughs) right? I know a lot of you agree. But this is an astounding thing to say for Paul to argue and for Christians across time and certainly even today to argue, right? Imagine saying this about someone like Martin Luther King Jr. Imagine saying because MLK was killed and not raised from the dead, his, all of his work and wisdom is meaningless, pointless. All of his sermons and his speeches on civil rights and racial justice should be ignored. His, his legacy is as dead as he is. Who, who would say such a thing? Well, nobody, of course. So why would we say it about Jesus of Nazareth? In a very real way, MLK lives on today because what is remembered lives, and, and who is remembered lives? MLK lives on because his memory lives on in the black community, And in all those who fight for racial justice, 
and who carry on his virtues of nonviolent resistance. The legacy and memory of MLK is very real, very much alive, continues to shape the world today. In a sense, martyrdom only made him more powerful. Death only turned him into, hear this, a holy ghost, if you will, that inhabits and inspires countless people today. And I think the same is true for Jesus of Nazareth. His teachings on love and justice, his humility, his sacrificial love, his, his radical embrace of suffering and death, all of that lives on today. I'm reminded of a parable Peter Rollins once told, and I, it's been a few years since I've told it, so it's, it's due for a repeat. <laughs> uh, and the parable goes like this. It came to pass after Jesus' crucifixion, some of the disciples were terrified that they too would be hunted down and crucified in the same way he was. And so after his death, on the same day, Good Friday, some of his disciples gathered up their their families and their belongings, and they chartered a boat to a remote island in the Mediterranean Sea where they settled and built a kind of Christian community where they could keep the memory of Christ alive by living in the loving and sacrificial ways that he taught them. The members of this community lived in solitude for years, sharing all their resources, loving and caring for each other in the way that Christ taught them. But eventually their isolation ended when a band of Christian missionaries discovered this remote island and the settlement on it. The missionaries were stunned. They were amazed to find these, this Christian community made up of some of Jesus's original disciples even. Um, what was most startling to them was the fact that these Christians had no knowledge of the resurrection or the ascension, and yet they were living as Christ. They had no knowledge of the resurrection or ascension because, of course, they had left Jerusalem before these things had occurred. Without hesitation, the missionaries gathered together the community and, and told them about the resurrection and ascension, and the community was so elated that that evening there was a great festival. Yet as the night progressed and the festivities continued, one of the missionaries noticed that one of the community elders was missing from the celebration, and so he went looking for him and found him sitting alone in the dark in a hut, weeping and praying. Why are you so upset? Today is a day of great celebration, said the missionary to the elder. And the elder responded, yes, it is a day of celebration, but this is also a day of sorrow. Since the founding of this community, we have followed the ways taught to us by Christ. We believe that his death, while terrible and final, was his greatest act of love and thereby shows us that we too can live sacrificially and face whatever may come, even death itself with courage. But now following your news, I'm concerned that my children and my grandchildren are going to lose sight of this. I'm concerned that they may, they may now only follow Christ, not out of genuine love, but because they, they want immortality. The missionary didn't know how to respond, and so the two men just sat in silence. What I love about this parable is how it suggests something we all know to be true, that one may follow Christ's teachings and be a Christian and not really know anything about the resurrection. 
It also suggests that perhaps focusing too much on the resurrection can actually be a distraction from living as Christ. There's an old saying that I grew up hearing in the Pentecostal church I grew up in, right? the hyper-conservative Pentecostal church I grew up in. We used to say, don't be so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. Have you heard that one before? Maybe you had to grow up in a church like mine. <laughs> don't be so heavenly-minded that you're, no of, you're of no earthly good. Now, that's kind of an amazing thing for even a group of fundamentalists to say, because we were actually even acknowledging then. You know, don't be so focused on immortality and the afterlife and the resurrection that you take your eyes off of this life and this world and the needs of your neighbor. That's kind of an amazing admission for a group of fundamentalist Pentecostals to admit or to say. Well, if that's not the focus, if the focus isn't on immortality, the afterlife, and the, and the resurrection, then what is our focus as Christians? I would argue it's the life and teachings of Jesus. It's his sacrificial love. It's his humility. It's, it's these themes from his life of love and justice and compassion and mercy. Shared suffering, the, the radical embrace of this life and this world and all of its fragility and finitude. That's the only kind of Christianity that interests me anymore. The otherworldly Christianity, the, the, the Christianity that's all about going to heaven when you die and being saved from hell and obtaining immortality, cheating death. You know, I, I have no interest in that Christianity anymore which, by the way, is probably the most prolific version of Christianity out there and the one most of us were raised on. And that doesn't mean I'm here to take away anybody's belief in the resurrection this morning or in the afterlife or in a literal historical understanding of the resurrection. They're, those are wonderful beliefs. Nor am I here this morning to try to prove the resurrection actually happened as you probably hear in a lot of churches today, a five-point sermon on why the resurrection is historical. doesn't surprise you that that's not where I'm going, right? <laughs> what I have a problem with is making that debate the defining issue of our faith, as if everything else Jesus said and did is utterly meaningless unless it was historical, it was literal. You know, if the whole point was for him to simply die and be resurrected, that's something he could have accomplished as an infant, as a baby. Remember, Herod wanted him dead. Remember the massacre of the innocents, that story? After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, according to Matthew's gospel, Herod sent soldiers to, it's a terrible story, to, to wipe out all the male children in the Bethlehem area under the age of two in the hopes of getting Jesus in the mix. Jesus could have died a martyr's death then, as Herod wanted to kill him for being supposedly Israel's Messiah king. He could have died then as Israel's Messiah king. And then resurrect three days later in order to accomplish his mission. The four gospels could have been really short. <laughs> could have been like two pages long. The story could have been he was born, he died, and was resurrected all in one week. Bada bing, bada boom, that's Christianity. But that's not the story, is it? Not even close. He lived for 30 years. He said and did many great things. Why? If the point was simply to die and rise again, what's, what's the point of living for 30 years? Don't get me wrong. Jesus' death and resurrection is an important part of the story. But resurrections and miracles and the supernatural and the afterlife, these things are not what's supposed to define our faith. 
in my opinion. Rather, love is. When Jesus said, all of the law and the prophets, in other words, all of scripture can be summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself, that should give us a pretty good clue about what should define our faith. They shall know we are Christians by our love, Jesus says in John 13. For God is love, 1 John 4 says. To place anything else above love is an act of idolatry, according to the scriptures. What is idolatry? Well, the most rudimentary understanding of it is that it's the worship of an inanimate object for its supposed magical powers, like you know, a stone carving of a deity. This is actually where we get the term fetish from. The term fetish doesn't actually originally have anything to do with sex or sexuality, but simply meant ascribing magical powers to an inanimate object and obsessing over it, worshiping it, in the hopes that it'll benefit you in some way, you know, supernaturally, superstitiously. Idols and fetishes can be mental or material. They can be made of wood or stone, or they can be made of beliefs and ideas and live in our heads. And I think for many Christians, the belief in a literal historical resurrection functions as an idol or a fetish. This thing that supposedly has magical powers, if you really believe in it, has magical powers to grant immortality, if you really believe in it in just the right way. You emote enough certainty in it, the magic will work, and you too will cheat death, we're told. When we fetishize the resurrection this way, and it's obvious why we fetishize it, because we fear death. When we fetishize it and turn it into an idol, we decenter what really matters love, justice, compassion, mercy. That's the cost of fetishizing the resurrection, the literal way people like to do it. We decenter and devalue what really matters in the hopes of obtaining immortality. Christianity, I believe, is an iconoclastic religion, meaning it's not just an idolless religion, a religion without idols and fetishes, but it's a religion that destroys or deconstructs idols. All idols, I, I think the cross signifies, among other things, the crucifixion of all idols. All idols have been crucified, all temple curtains have been torn, so that love pure love may reign supreme. To make anything else the core tenet of our faith, I think, is an act of idolatry. And this isn't, this isn't a new idea. This is some postmodern, progressive, newfangled, left-wing Christian idea. This is actually, we even find this idea, it's not even original to Christianity. It's found in the Old Testament. The ancient Hebrew prophets of the Old Testament spoke against the fetishizing of religion over acts of love and justice. As the prophet Amos wrote, chapter five, I, the Lord, take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Take away from me the noise of your worship, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Likewise, the prophet Isaiah says, is this not the fast I have chosen, says the Lord? 
to loosen the bonds of injustice and let the oppressed go free and to share your bread with the hungry. The fetishizing of religion over acts of love and justice has long been a problem for religion. And this fetishizing of a literal resurrection within Christianity is just another chapter in that story. The bottom line is we all can have different beliefs about resurrections and miracles and the supernatural and the afterlife. That's wonderful. I welcome that. Let's have different beliefs about that stuff. But if love is not the defining thing of our faith, the defining tenet of our faith, then I think we have lost our way and we are off base. And I think when love is the center of our faith, that in turn defines what we believe about things like resurrections. I love the way Dorothy Soleil looked at it. She was a Christian liberation theologian that rose to prominence in the 1970s. She died in the early 2000s. She said this. This was her take on the resurrection. Where there is solidarity, there is resurrection. When we break the neutrality of silence and abandon our complicity with injustice, the new life begins. I love that. Hear that again. Where there is solidarity, there is resurrection. When we break the neutrality of silence and abandon our complicity with injustice, the new life begins. That is an understanding of the resurrection informed by love and justice. For her, the resurrection was really an insurrection, which is a great word, an insurrection against the evil and unjust systems of our world and, and the triumph of love and justice over those enormous systems. And the word insurrection is really a great way to, to describe the resurrection because, you know, the resurrection was actually illegal. <laughs> If you know that, it's kind of funny to think about it, but it actually was. It was illegal. It was an insurrectionary act against Rome. The story goes that the religious leaders went to Pilate after Jesus was crucified. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor of the region. And the priests went to him after Jesus was dead and said they were concerned that Jesus' disciples were going to steal the body, fake the resurrection, stage it. And Pilate thought, yeah, that's a concern. That's a good idea. Let's do something about that. And so he stationed a bunch of Roman soldiers outside the tomb, we're told, and stamped a wax seal, his official the Pontius Pilate wax seal on the stone in front of the tomb in order to say that stone's not to be touched for any reason. It's not to be moved by order of the Roman governor. The resurrection was an illegal act. It was against the law. It was an act of... It was insurrectionary. It was an act of insurrection against an oppressive and unjust empire, the same empire that nailed Jesus to the cross in the first place. Therefore, to affirm the resurrection is to believe in a kind of insurrectionary power, the power of civil disobedience, the power of resisting evil and unjust systems, and the possibility, as impossible as it may seem, the possibility that the weak, the poor, and the so-called powerless might actually affect change in the world and triumph over the rulers and authorities. Anytime we dare to believe in such insurrectionary power and, and stand in solidarity with the oppressed, we are affirming the resurrection. And likewise, when we don't do this, we are denying the resurrection. 
Thus, what we truly believe about the resurrection lives in our actions and how we treat the so-called least of these as Christ did. To put it another way, to affirm the resurrection is to affirm the power of love in all the various ways it heals and liberates and overcomes the world. To affirm the resurrection is to affirm the life-giving and resurrecting power of love itself. To affirm the resurrection is to say, love wins. This is what I mean when I say he is risen, he is risen indeed. I am really saying love wins, love wins indeed. May love win the day. Conquer all rulers and authorities, principalities and powers, all unjust and evil systems, and structures. And if this is our understanding of the resurrection, then, then perhaps the resurrection really is everything. As we turn to the Lord's Supper today, I want you to meditate on these words from earlier. What is remembered lives, and who is remembered lives. This sacrament is, of course, given to us by Christ himself, who said, do this in remembrance of me. These elements symbolize the body of Christ, the broken, crucified Christ, his body and blood. And by receiving that into ourselves, we are saying, I choose to remember Christ and his example and live as his disciple. Christ is raised in me as a Holy Ghost. I am now the body of Christ. I am now the hands and feet of God in the world. That's the deeper meaning of this sacrament, especially on Easter Sunday. What is remembered lives and who is remembered lives. Let us meditate on that as we receive the Lord's Supper this morning and Max leads us in song. Here at Central, the way that we partake in this, this holy sacrament is you come forward in just a moment and you take one of these cups of grape juice and one of our gluten-free crackers and you take it back to your seat with you and receive it when you are ready. Um, yeah, that's how we do it. But with that, let us partake now. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. Well, for those of you who are new here at Central, this part of the service is really different. Um, every week following communion, we have a little conversation. <laughs> uh, if people want to, um, not every week they do, but uh, we have a little Q&A or I guess a dialogue where basically I invite comments, questions, complaints <laughs> about uh, my talk and we get to learn from each other because we're a family, and this is church, and it's not all about what the man up front has to say, <laughs> or the woman. Last week, it was a woman. It's her right there. Um, so anybody, and this applies to those of you who are joining us via Zoom, of course, you can always unmute and uh, raise a comment or a question that way. But yeah, uh, anybody this morning has to think they want to 
about my my talk or about the resurrection and anything we touched on. Hi, Aaron. Hey, who's that? Randy. Hi. Hey, Randy. A quick question. Um, I was reading on some YouTube podcast that um, the actual resurrection on the third day isn't mentioned in Hebrew scriptures. Um, do okay. you know anything about that? Uh, what scriptures could possibly pertain to a Messiah that died and then rose again on the third day? Or is it just kind of all metaphors? Oh, I, so it's interesting. Are you saying that according to what you read or saw, somebody was arguing that in the in the Hebrew Old Testament, there you are, yeah. um, that there's some scripture that talks about um, Israel's Messiah needing to rise again on the third day. Is that what you're saying? Uh, they're saying that there is no, nothing mentioned in the Hebrew Bible about oh, a resurrected Christ. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at some of my fellow seminarians here. <laughs> I've never heard of that either. Yeah, I don't think there's anything in the Old Testament that foretells that. Um, yeah, I, so I think they're right, Randy. I think it's a good point. Hmm. Yeah. So I wonder how the whole resurrected Savior is just a New Testament thing then? Yeah, that, that he shall die and rise again three day, after three days. I believe that's actually from the, in the Gospels. It, that's in at least one of the Gospels where it says that. Hmm. You know, destroy this body and I will raise it up in three days. Yeah, yeah. That's Jesus. I remember that. <laughs> I think that's Gospel of John in particular, which focuses more on the divinity of Christ. Max is nodding yes, so that's, that makes me feel better. I do know the Bible, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. Does it answer your question, Randy? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because usually the prophecies concerning Jesus, um, they can point out specific scriptures, but not to the actual rising from the dead on the third day. Yeah. Nothing yeah. mentioned in the Old Testament. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, man. Thanks. Good stuff. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, other, other remarks, comments, questions today? Yeah, Jesse. I'll get you a mic so that everybody can hear you online. I was just thinking as you were talking about love being the central thrust of the gospel. Of what? Oh, love. love yeah. Could you hold the mic a little? There you go. I was just thinking as you were talking about love being the central thrust of the gospel, how even love is malformed in, uh, in the American and global notion of church with this idea that um, we break with that content of love the sinner, hate the sin kind of notion that even in those practices, we have disregarded the gospel and we have turned it into this supernatural, we judgy kind of thing. And so we can't, we have a hard time just sitting in that notion of radical love because it's so counter and we don't want to hold the iconoclastic radical notion of what that actually means in the world. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, to be clear, when I argue th that I think the gospel, the main thrust, as you put it, the gospel is, is love, you know, that is, that is certainly my take of Christianity. But there's, as you would admit, there's many, there isn't like one essence of Christianity. And I have to always be careful. I had to change my message a little this week because I, I found that I was arguing that this is the true essence of Christianity. Well, there's a lot of different Christianities out there. We were raised in different Christianities, right? There's that one that's more otherworldly and 
that that is a Christianity that is very old, right? And um, while I think that the gospel is about love and justice, there's other Christianities out there. And I'm not pretending to say that I that I have the one true Christianity because Christianity is as diverse as we are. And I don't really agree with other versions of Christianity. This is my version and our version, I would say. Um, and I think it has a very, uh, it's very much backed up by the Bible, which always is a troubling thing to say. It's biblical, we're biblical. Um, well, it's about love. And if, you know, if that's not good enough, I don't know what to tell you, <laughs> you know? But no, it's a, it's a really good point, Jesse. And, you know, and, and the word love in the English language, the way we Americans use the word love, we say, I love French fries and I love my, my spouse, you know, it's the same word. And it's like, it, it's, it's, and we say that God is love. Well, we're talking about something that's kind of ineffable to say God is love. We're talking about the depth dimension of being. I, so it's a very um, deep word, that word love, when I invoke it here on Sundays or, when, you know, in other sacred settings. But yeah, thank you for that comment. Other, other comments this morning or questions? Yeah, Emily, and then Ashley. I think the thing that I always struggled with in religion was that to me, the love part made so much sense, mm -hmm. but the words that these people used didn't match that. And I know I've said this a billion times, but it was so confusing for me growing up where it was like, wait a minute. So you love me, but you disagree with my identity. Mm -hmm. So how does that, that doesn't make any sense. My mother says, well, you can be homosexual, but you can't act on it. All of these things are just like, what are, do you even know what you're talking about? Because half of the time this, the contradictions and the hypocrisy yeah. so overshine anything. And you're not, you know, you're not supposed to understand certain things. You're not supposed to ask questions. You're not supposed to do any of these things. And I think that the one thing the whole world or the religions should sort of come together on is love. Yeah. And if love trumps everything, then how can you disagree with, how about it's also none of your business? Yeah, <laughs> yeah well said. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, when I, I was thinking when you were talking about the way that the, the definition of love we were given in the church, it's kind of gaslit. Yeah. It's kind of gaslighting sure. to say, I love you, but I'm going to deny this huge part of your humanity. I love you, but I think you're doomed to hell. Yep. You deserve torture for eternity because X, Y, or Z but I love you right. and God is love and he loves you like a father loves his child, yep. but you don't believe the right thing. So you're doomed. I mean, that's not, I mean, the idea that that was love and we were taught that is so twisted and it's no wonder so many of us go through therapy and, and really struggle with deconstruction and having to relearn what, what is love and loving ourselves, loving ourselves and learning how to actually have empathy and care for others when we were told that empathy could send you to hell, you know, loving, loving somebody who was gay and affirming their, 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 you know, their, their identity that way, they could send you to hell. That's love. Yeah. I mean, that's really sad. And, um, in a sense, the fact that you're even here, here on a, here in a church on Easter Sunday is a demonstration, I think of love's power, yeah. love's power to breathe new life 
into dead things or people who were, you know, subjected to terrible things like you. Anyway, but thank you for that comment. Um, yeah. Ashley, uh, right in front of you there. Could you grab the mic? Yeah. And thank you for speaking last week. Absolutely. <laughs> Shout out to Max today. Wow. The music was amazing. Yeah, Max. Oh my gosh. I think we were in tears the first song. I was like, wow. Also, a side note, parents, be careful not to take things from your kids and to discipline them harshly and to say you're doing it out of love. Yeah. Because you're going to really traumatize them and make them associate love with taking something from, you know, that's so something yeah. to think about. I think it's really important that we expand the Christian life outside of this like blanket word of love. Hmm. Because I don't believe Christ died on the cross so that we can die on our own crosses every day and to like constantly give, 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 give to other people and sacrifice our lives, even for the sake of justice and compassion. I do believe there's so much more to life. That's part of it. That's a huge, healthy part of it. But I believe that Christ died on the cross so that we could have the, well, I believe that Christ came and Christ taught so our lives could be better, so that our relationships could be healthier so that we could experience joy. Forgiveness comes, and that's the first part, but then the end story is joy, uh, pleasure. I believe pleasure is a part of the Christian spiritual life. Mm. We should be talking about this more and valuing it just as much as we value love and justice, pleasure, joy, connection. I mean, this is the end story, not the cross, <laughs> not self-sacrifice, not Christian martyrdom. You know, I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah, I mean, once again, how we define love really matters. You're right, Ashley, how we define it matters. And some of us who grew up in maybe unhealthy relationships or unhealthy homes were taught that love looks like codependency, right? And if that's not love, yeah, yeah those are difficult conversations to have. But thank you for raising that important point. Anybody else this morning? Yeah, Leanne. Hi, everyone. Great to see you all. Um, something I've always wondered, um, and I've always felt that this is, I mean, I feel safe wondering this here, <laughs> um, um, from a biblical standpoint of just putting myself in the shoes of what the burgeoning Christian movement or Jesus movement would have looked like, and then having him die, like just the shock, like, I feel like that wasn't, that couldn't have been the plan of like, oh my gosh, our leader is now dead. He mm. was crucified in a public way. And I, I remember I was reading something about how the New Testament, the gospels being a mix of potentially the burgeoning Christian movement, you know, 50 years after his death. And I have just always wondered, like, I'm not too, you know, I haven't read it too many times, so I'm not as well versed as some of you are, but some of these things that he says where it's, it's like he's predicting his own death. He's predicting what will happen. He says, I will do this. And as it is foretold and da, 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 da. And I always wondered, like, was that perhaps put in later by the Christian movement to make it feel like it was all part of the plan mm. and that his resurrection was foretold and it was all supposed to happen? And I just always wondered, like, was that a coping mechanism for the just the trauma of his death? So mm. anyway, just something I've always thought about is like, how much did he actually did he actually foretell all of these things specifically did he or just that skepticism of like was that also maybe part of the burgeoning movement later going in and saying oh not saying this is a bad thing i'm not <laughs> criticizing them for this but giving that comfort of don't worry he always knew what was going to happen mm, yeah. so i was just always wondering about that <laughs> wow yeah no that's really there's so much there to unpack and it's a 
really great point. You know, um, the last, gosh, I think over the last few months, we've talked about this here, how we, we really do need to read the gospels through the lens of the Hebrew tradition in which they rose up really. Um, and in the, in, in the Hebrew tradition, in, and in the tradition of, let's say, like the prophets of the Old Testament, often what what was taking place in those writings is something called, I'm going to mess this up, but I think it's pronounced Vaticidium ex eventu, which is basically a kind of post-diction or what we would say prophecy after the fact that these texts were written as not, not, not as a way of, um, you know, uh, we, today we would, Today we would see this as fraud, you know. They're 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 deliberately trying to mislead us, and you know, no. Back then, that was a way of actually. History wasn't something that was like static and unchanging or objective, but these sacred texts were a way of actually creating history. But you know, even after the fact, they were read in a kind of sacred tradition that was seen as a way of, you know, not just rereading something that happened, but this kind of expectation, this hope of creating history in these texts. Does that make sense a little bit? Their understanding of history and time was really different than us moderns. And then, and the purpose of literature and writing itself was different, um, deeply, deeply symbolic. And we talked about midrash and how the gospels can be actually or should be read as a kind of midrash reading on the Exodus narrative, and specifically um, out of out of that you know tradition, the Exodus tradition. They're kind of a Jesus is presented in the gospels as Moses. There's so many allusions to Moses symbolically, right? He's presented as Mo Moses 2.0, who's come to fulfill the Exodus and lead God's people, you know, out of bondage and into the promised land of the kingdom of God, right? And that's how the gospels were written. You know, it's a kind of, you know, deeply, some, some call it Jewish novella, where they were written as a kind of Jewish novel, as a way of saying that Jesus was truly king of kings and lord of lords and not Caesar, um, and that ultimately it's the weak and the powerful and the oppressed that God is on their side and not on the side of the wealthy and the powerful, which is what people presupposed back then. There's so much richness in the Gospels and things that are going on that can only be properly understood by reading them in their original first century Jewish context with an eye for the Hebrew Old Testament. <laughs> Uh, there's, there's so much there, Leanne, and you raised some really good points, but, um, yeah, that's, that's basically all I can say about that right now. I'm going to preach a whole nother sermon on that, <laughs> but, um, great, great, great point. Anybody else this morning before we conclude? Yeah, uh, please, um, Leland, yeah, take the mic. Just a quick comment on that. Um, every time around this year, I think about, um, Probably one of my first like forays into exegesis was when my dad gave me, um, when I was like 10, uh, a copy of um, Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> and the I movie or the, or was it? The, a... No, the, the like soundtrack. And okay. I think um, listening to like the Judas songs really kind of eye opens a lot to that kind of because judas makes a lot of good points <laughs> Jesus Christ, I'm sorry. It's like only it's, in this church would you hear yeah. that you know that but, judas guy really he, he was onto something That's yeah it was a lot of like did you know this was going to go so badly well say yeah. i'm sorry leland yeah, say that again I, I, judas said something like did you know that this was going to go so badly mm. and um it's interesting because like did jesus know he was going to die <laughs> kind of yeah, yeah. I, I would say the, the historic Jesus of Nazareth, which we don't really have access to, um, but I believe there was a historical Jesus of Nazareth. I would imagine that he knew his life was in danger doing what he was doing. How could you not? 
He absolutely knew he was taking a risk, but it was worth it for the cause of love. And it's worth it for us as well, his disciples. What a, I think that's exactly where we should end. <laughs> and I appreciate you being here today. For those of you who are here in person, for those of you who joined us via Zoom, um, this, of course, is our podcast as well. So um, you can find this uh, wherever you get your podcast from and share that. But thank you for being here. Happy Easter to all of you. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again soon. Go in peace. Thank you.